Well, good morning and greetings in Jesus' name again this morning. I find that hard to believe that you, you would ever forget a thing like this, but uh, I guess it's possible. Give yourself 40 years. Yeah, 40 years. Be fortunate to be around in 40 years. All right, well, um, today's Sunday school lesson was uh, about sin and its results, and um, Obviously, we're looking at a different dispensation. I'm thankful that we don't live in that dispensation. Uh, there, was, there, was, um, there was ways to remedy the, the effects of sin in that time. But in some ways, it was more like a Band-Aid than what uh, is available to us today. So today, I would like to talk about the remedy to that problem, that sin problem. I title my topic, The Necessity of the New Birth. And I guess there's several reasons I chose to talk on this topic. Um, I ran across an article that um, kind of put things into perspective um, a bit for me. And I, I, I appreciate Ellis's um, admonition to not compare ourselves among ourselves. So we're going to attempt not to do that this morning. But I do want to just throw a few numbers up here for you to consider as we speak here. Um, and I don't even get it right away. Right away. Okay. Those percentages there represent a poll that was taken in 2011 by a, a polling group. The bottom number represents the amount of people or the, the, the folks in that particular poll that when asked, are you a Christian? They said, we are not. Not a Christian. This is American people. 80% said, we are. So don't you feel better already? Um, we are, after all, a Christian nation, right? Well, don't get too excited just quite yet. 40% of that 80 said, we're not only Christians, we're born-again Christians. Now, I see a little dichotomy there because um, can you be a Christian and not be born again? Is that possible? I would suggest to you it's not. But even a more alarming uh, part of this, I found anyway, was of this 40%, and in this particular poll, the way it was, uh, it, it was um, um, the polling, the way they tracked the polling was they didn't go by exactly what you said. Like if I just walk up and say, are you a born-again Christian? You, say, you could just say, oh, yeah, sure. Uh, they actually quizzed the, the, the folks on their belief system, and from that they deduced whether these folks were indeed born again. All right? So that's, that's kind of how they, they did this. But of that 40%, only roughly about two-thirds gave any evidence, fruit, any any, just by their just basic actions that, you know what, you are acting like maybe there is a chance you're born again. So when we, when we run those numbers all out, we come to maybe, maybe, 18%, maybe, folks in this country that we live in today that are acting like born-again Christians. All right? Another thing, another reason this, this topic came to my mind I was, um, I was um, 
riding around this summer with my um, territory manager in the seed company that I, I work with, and um, he's a Catholic, and I, I didn't know that for a period of time, but I found it out that, that day. And so I said to him, I said, well, Rick, you know, we were, we were talking about our beliefs and whatever. I said, so let's suppose I'm, a, I'm a, um, a person off the street, and I come to you and I say, Rick, what can I do to save my soul? Well, he, he thought a little bit and he said, I'd probably tell you to go see a priest. And he said, uh, maybe start going to church every Sunday would be a good place to start. I said, okay. I said, so does the term born again mean anything to you at all? Hmm. He said, um, he said, that's not part of my lingo. Okay. I said, uh, familiar with the, the Bible at all? No, he said, I never, I never read the Bible. And so our, our discussion proceeded from there. But the, the thing that, that uh, stuck out to me was the word lingo. I fear that the reason these numbers show up the way they do is because born again is mere lingo. In this, in this country we live in for sure. And I guess another thing that bothers me just a little bit is why is there the... Um, why is there the lethargic attitude in even some of our churches? Why is there, you know, sometimes you'll, 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 you'll hear, you'll see of, um, of somebody that you thought for sure was on the straight and narrow, and all at once they're caught in some sordid sin. You're like, how can that be? Now, I want to say a few things to that. Satan's after us all. Any one of us can be born again and trip. And, and, and be caught in sordid sin. I want to make that clear. But I also, there's, there's a question, a nagging question in my mind. Is there a possibility that the term born again has become mere lingo to us as well? I trust not. I'm not necessarily even suggesting that that's the case. But I want to warn us it can become that, okay? And I think we need to, uh, to make sure that... Each one of us knows what that is, me included in that, very much so. You know, my occupation, um, when a cow has a calf, I want that calf to be alive. And I, I strive for 100% live birth. Now, I don't make that. And there's actually, um, there's actually little statistics I can look at and Lynn and Warren can too, and it tells me how am I stacking up to uh, the industry standards. Um, and there's actually a standard that says, okay, you know, no more than 6%, whatever. I forget what the number is, but no more than that. If you get over that, it's, it's too much. Uh, and, and we call these births DOAs, dead on arrivals. So my question is, is there a possibility that we are, that we could be guilty of dead on arrival, new birth. Is that possible? Um, I don't know. Something for you to think about. But are we, are we okay with a percentage of people just kind of fitting in the 80% or the 40 or whatever it is there? Um, eh, sort of kind of Christians, but not quite. Is that okay with us? Well, turn me to John 3. Thank you. 
when you talk on the subject of the new birth, you could develop a topic like this in different ways, but as I thought about it, I thought, you know, what better place to go than the old familiar scripture of John 3, where uh, Jesus lays it out. He, he talks to this man, Nicodemus, about the new birth, and so my, um, my hope is this morning that we can walk through this scripture, this conversation with Nicodemus, and if, if uh, we have any goals here today, you know, our Sunday school lesson always has lesson aims. If there's an aim here today, I think, in this portion of Scripture, it is to grasp anew the, the absolute necessity of the new birth. It's necessary. And to recognize that there has to be some fruit to go with that. So let's read. There was a man of, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night, said to him, Rabbi... We know thou art a teacher come from God, and no man can do these miracles, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I had told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest that they are wrought in God. So we're going to walk through this, um, this reading. And just a few things I want you to remember. I want, to re- want you to remember the context. I want you to remember who the conversation is being have, had with, because that somewhat helps to explain some of the things that Jesus is, uh, is talking about here. So, of course, we're all, we all know who Nicodemus is. I'm not going to go into that just real much. But he was a Pharisee. He was a person of prominence. He was a ruler part of the Sanhedrin, and one little tidbit John drops in here is that he came by night. 
And we often just kind of, okay, he came by night because he was scared of the Pharisees. He didn't want to be seen with Jesus in the daylight. Very possible that that is the case. Um, and I would actually say quite likely. I think that deduction is probably correct. However, we gotta, we got to also quickly add, we don't know that for sure. This man was busy. He's part of the Sanhedrin. He's got a lot going. It could well be that Nicodemus only had night to come see Jesus. That's possible. Um, I'd like to give him credit for one thing. He at least came. None of the rest of them did. He came. The other thing I think we often don't even think about is that Jesus had time for this man. Uh, You suppose Jesus was like, I can't wait to talk a couple hours with this man. I think he did want to, but I think Jesus was physically shocked. You know, read the chapter before. I mean, this man's performing miracles. He's, I mean, people are thronging around him. This, he's having busy days, and I think, I think he appreciated sleep as well. But he had time. So I think that's two important things. Nicodemus at least came. Jesus had time for him. When he came, it's interesting how Nicodemus walks up and just spits it out. I mean, it's, it's, you know, his introduction to me is just um, interesting. So he says, Rabbi, he, he addresses him very respectfully. He says, we know you're a teacher, and we know that because um, uh, a teacher from God because of your miracles. And um, he, he just, that's what he says. And um, if we would go back again to chapter 2, we would see in verse, um, I think it's verse 23. It says, now when he was come in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles he did. So Nicodemus isn't alone here. People were observing Many people are believing because of the miracles. So he, he, um, he gives that, um, that, that's his salutation. So what does, what does Nicodemus expect from Jesus? Well, that's, we don't exactly know. But um, I don't know if he expected some commendation because of, um, if, of his observation. Did he uh, expect an invitation maybe to join the, the, the team of disciples? Uh, Jesus was selecting those at this time. Um, maybe he expected some accolades for his work as a, as a teacher in, in Israel. Maybe. But that's not what he got. Unknown to Nicodemus, I believe, Jesus was more than just a teacher from God. He was Jesus. And I don't think Nicodemus quite knew that yet. So in verse 3, Jesus has another, he has just as an interesting way of coming back to Nicodemus. He just says, very verily, I say unto you, and he goes on about the, the new birth. Um, it's interesting that in verse 24 and 25, again of chapter 2, that it says, Nicodemus, or Nicodemus, Jesus did not commit himself unto them, and that's the people, because he knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. I think, I think Jesus knew that Nicodemus just needed to be, I, I don't want to use the word tripped, but he needed this. Whatever Jesus told Nicodemus right here is what Nicodemus did, needed. And I think Nicodemus probably, well, I shouldn't say probably, he comes right back and he, and he doesn't understand this. But I think he probably liked some of the things he heard. I think he liked the, the word kingdom. Um, I'm, I'm assuming he probably did. Uh, most of the Jews, as we well know, were expecting something of a kingdom when the Messiah came. 
Um, he, I'm sure he was puzzled at the born again part, and he says that in verse 4. Um, and he, I'm sure he put a lot of stock in the fact that he was born of Abraham, and he thought that was good enough. Jesus tells him it's not. Jesus says that the kingdom that he's establishing cannot be built without changed people. That was important for Nicodemus to know. So let's give Nicodemus credit in verse 4. He responds and he does not feign to understand. He says, what do you mean? Say on. So Jesus does. He, he, Jesus tries to explain that the spiritual and the earthly are two different things. Flesh never produces spiritual things. Spiritual never produces fleshly things. And then he wraps it up in verse 7. He goes, one more time, don't be surprised if I tell you you must be born again. So let's just stop and consider for just a minute. If it's so important, and Nicodemus catches this, that you must be born again, and if that um, analogy of a birth um, is supposed to make sense to Nicodemus, there must be some things we can learn from this too. So I just um, I thought for a few seconds about, you know, what, what about a birth, a natural birth, would be what we could expect in a new birth? And I'm going to throw these out for you to think about. Um, when a baby is about to be born, it is something that is anticipated and expected. I, we, we look forward to that. We're glad for that. We want it to happen. Um, when I look at whoever, any person on the face of this earth, do I look with him with the anticipation and the understanding that that person is a potential for God's kingdom? He's a potential birth. It's, it's what he is. Um, do we anticipate that out of every person? Birth is a beginning that is obvious and marked. Um, when a baby is born, we don't sit there and say, now was he born or wasn't he? Did that happen? Uh, we, we know that. Um, Mom especially knows it. Pop does too. And uh, even more silly, it would be silly of me to go to one of you and say, are you born? It's just like, duh. You know, you just don't do that. Is it, should it be any less expected that a person that's born again, should it be obvious? Should, should there be a lot of question if that's the case? You know, it's a little different, I understand, but I think there should be something there that makes that evident. A baby inherits the parents' genes, the parents' DNA. Should it be any different with the new birth? Should not. The, uh, the person that experiences the new birth exudes something of his heavenly father? Is that expecting too much? I would suggest probably not. Um, there's a radical difference, there's a radical change in the way that baby, that baby's life is sustained. Um, there's, things are going to be different now. He's got he's to suck his own milk. Um, things aren't just going to be handed to him quite like it was before. Um, same with us uh, that have experienced the new birth or folks that will. Um, we have to put forth some effort. Things are going to be different. Old things are passed away and things are becoming new. Another thing that's obvious is that growth is expected. I mean, we want to see pounds on that baby, and we want to see this, this stepping right along. I mean, we're, we're weighing them on a weekly, maybe even daily basis, and we want to see them ounces jumping up there. And, and we're concerned when it, when it is not happening. Um, again, you, I'm sure you get the correlation. 
is is it any less uh, expected of a person that experiences a new birth to to grow to see some see some um, some growth? Should a ten-year-old Christian act and look like a one-year-old? I would suggest that there's reason to think that there should be growth there, and maybe. Um, Maybe some of us mature at faster rates. I would say that's probably true, but some growth has to be there. Um, it's a joyous occasion. Did I miss that? We love it. We love it when babies are born. Heaven rejoices when, ba- when new babies, new spiritual babies are born. Um, should, we as Christians should rejoice. Another thing, at least at our house, whenever a baby is born... Um, the siblings are right there. They want to help in every way they can. In fact, in fact, at our house, they scrap to hold the baby. They want to. They want to do these things. Not so much maybe as the baby gets older, but at first, it's quite a thing. Um, and this kind of lands on us now. When a new baby is born into God's family, are we scrapping to help that baby? Uh, are we right there, you know, uh, lifting that person up by helping that person grow as much as he can? Um, perhaps some of the Issues that uh, we have it occasionally is, is because we as brothers and sisters of that new baby have failed in that area. Perhaps it is. So Jesus goes on and he throws another one out here to Nicodemus. He talks about wind and uh, he compares that to the spirit. And as I thought on that, meditated on that verse a bit, I, I just was amazed how many things you can compare the spirit and the wind with. Um, and I'm just going to throw a few out to you to think about and how, how that relates to people coming and experiencing the new birth. Do you ever think about the ran, randomness of the wind? It comes this way one day, that way another way. You know, you just like, where do I put my windbreak? It, it's coming from every direction. Um, can you predict when the Spirit will call a person and how he'll do that? I can't. It's, it's different for every, every individual. Um, can you control the wind? I wish I could some days, but I can't. You can't either. Can you control the spirit? That might be a little different. Um, I think we can to the degree that we are concerned about a person and his soul. I think if we pray for that person, I think God moves with his spirit to work in that person's life. But ultimately, that's up to God and his spirit, how that moves. We can't control it. Um, can you see the wind? Obviously not. We can't see the spirit. The spirit can work with force, or it can be quite peaceful. Um, again, same with the wind. Um, it can convict. It can be forceful on the spirit side, or it can console and be more peaceful. The wind can be harvest, harnessed for usefulness, and a person led by the spirit can be an extremely useful person. A wind can be our friend or he can be our foe. And so it is with the, the Spirit of God. Just to one person, it's his friend. To the next person, it's his enemy. Well, it isn't his enemy, but it feels like his enemy. Put it that way. Well, let's move on. Again, in verse 9, Nicodemus one more time says, How can this be? And it's interesting, it's the last time Nicodemus talks. He's still confused. How can it be? And uh, verses 10 to 15, I have to admit, in preparation for this, I probably spent more time here than I did any other part of, um, of this chapter. 
It seems a bit disjointed, but as I thought of it, I thought each one of these points that Jesus makes was important for Nicodemus. So he points out in, uh, in verse 10, he says, it seems like he's chiding Nicodemus a bit. He says, are you telling me you're a teacher and you're not getting this? To me, in my little mind, it seems like Jesus is being just a little harsh on Nicodemus. I got to deduce he's not because Jesus knew his heart. And I got to deduce that Nicodemus should have known more because Jesus seems to indicate that he should have. What could Nicodemus have known? Well, we do know this. If you would go back and read in the prophets, there is enough verses there that says a change of heart is what's coming down the pike. And it seems to me that even an Old Testament saint, and, and I would, I would uh, here's where open discussion would be great. Maybe I should throw it open. But it seems to me that an Old Testament saint in the will of God could have at least experienced somewhat of a change. And I, and, I, and I think that because of what Jesus says. We're still in the Old Testament dispensation, and he says, you don't understand this? You're a teacher and you don't get it? Now, I don't know to what extent that sort of change was, you know, God expected of these people, but somehow Jesus expected more of Nicodemus than what he had. We do know this, that um, um, baptism was something that was practiced in the Old Testament. Jewish proselytes were baptized, John the Baptist, John the Baptist baptized, and, and these folks, and John the Baptist for sure, taught change. We know that. So I'm not sure how that, all, how that all works out, but it seems like Nicodemus should have known more. In verse 11, then Jesus suddenly um, changes the pronouns. He goes from I to we, and he starts talking about witnesses. Um, again, to a person like Nicodemus, this is extremely important. I mean, we're not talking to some bum on the street that doesn't care. He's just good with any old testimonial written up wherever. He wants witnesses. And, and Jesus says, I got my witnesses. He said, just pay attention. He said, you're, you're, not, um, you're not paying attention because they're there. Very important. You understand that. In the Old Testament, a man could not be charged with anything without two or three witnesses. New Testament, same thing. You got a problem with your brother, you, you get a couple witnesses with you. Um, so who are these witnesses? And I got to tell you, I'm not sure, I'm not sure that I know. Um, I have a, a personal commitment to not, um, and this is just my personal thing, I don't like to rely too much on commentators because I think they sometimes lead me astray. On this one, I went to the commentators, and they didn't even agree. So I'm not sure who the witnesses are. But I'll tell you what I think, and you can think what you think. I think there's a possibility it could be a couple different things. I think it could be the two other parts of the Trinity, perhaps. Um, Perhaps Jesus had some of his disciples standing around there listening to this conversation. Perhaps they were the we. I tend to think, and this is just my opinion, I tend to think the witness was John the Baptist and some of his disciples. That's just what I think. And I think that because John, uh, here when he's writing his book, if you go back into chapter 1 and you read that, um, again and again in John 1, um, John the disciple calls John the Baptist a witness. He bore record. He has this for a testimony. There's no reason. 
It seemed like meticulous record was, was kept by John about what was coming down the pike. So I don't know. I'm not sure who these witnesses were, but um, Jesus had witnesses. We know that. So here's my challenge for us on this witness thing. If, if Jesus was concerned about having a witness to this new birth experience, should it be any different from, for us as people of God, people that are Christians, people that uh, claim to know God, and I trust do? When people see us, can they say, there's something different about that man. He's, uh, he's, um, can they bear witness to our change, in other words, is my question. Does the Spirit bear witness with your soul that something has changed, that you are a son of God? You know, in Acts, um, whenever John and Peter were before the Sanhedrin there, um, the people were just, uh, the, the rulers were astonished. They said, something has changed with these people. These people have been with Jesus. They're ignorant and unlearned, and they talk like they know what they're talking about. It was a witness for these folks. They had been with Jesus. Does our testimony, our testimony bear us witness? Going on to verse 12, um, again here, um, it seems like Jesus is somewhat chiding Nicodemus. He says, um, um, I'm talking about earthly things. I'm trying to make a comparison here to earthly things. And he said, you're telling me you're still not getting it. He says, should I really proceed on, Father? Should I really uh, talk about things heavenly when you're not getting the earthly metaphors? Should I proceed? I don't know whether Nicodemus nodded his head or not, but Jesus did. He proceeded. And um, he, he talks about, again, about uh, an eyewitness, actually, in verse 13. He says, no man has ever gone up to heaven, but there is one that has come down. And again, I think that was important to Nicodemus because um, Jesus was that person, and I think Nicodemus probably caught on to that. And, um, and Jesus said, I'm here to tell you about heavenly things, so listen on. So Jesus proceeds in verse 14 to um, talk about Moses and the wilderness experience with that brazen serpent. And we're not going to take a lot of time here. You're familiar with that story. But there's a lot of similarities there, if you just stop and think about it, between that experience with those Israelites back there in the wilderness and those snakes biting them. And there was one way out, and that was to look at that brazen serpent. And um, if any, any lesson can be learned by that, and that is if the serpent is sin, and that brazen serpent is, the, um, is Jesus Christ, as many as looked on that brazen serpent were healed. Now, how much of that Nicodemus was getting, I question. But he at least knew that whenever Jesus died, I bet his, uh, this conversation came back to, uh, in, his, in his thoughts. There's an interesting um, part to that story there in Numbers that I, wanna, I just want to bring out. When the snakes were starting to bite, and people were dying, things weren't looking real good. The people came to Moses and they said, we've sinned, ask God to take these snakes away. So, Moses prays, and what did God do? Did he take the snakes away? No, he didn't. He didn't take the snakes away. The snakes stayed there, and they kept on biting. But if you were willing to look at that snake on that pole, you were healed. Same thing today. 
sin's always going to be around us. That we live in a sinful world. Um, it's not going away. But the power to live above that sin is by Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrected um, life that he gives to us. So now we come to verse 16. And this is often referred to as the golden text of the Bible. We know it so well that I think we don't even think about what it's saying. God so loved the world. Is that right? God so loved the world. Sit and consider a minute the experience God has had with the world so far to this point. It has not been real great. Uh, it didn't make out real well with Adam and Eve. Um, Cain and Abel aren't really stellar examples. Uh, well, maybe the one was, but certainly not the other. Uh, Noah's neighbors certainly weren't anything to brag about. Um, the nation of Israel seemed to have been somewhat of a complete failure. And God so loved the world. Really. When you sit and you contemplate that, it's hard to get your, your, your mind around that. And folks, I would suggest that even you and I cannot fully grasp the sinfulness of our own hearts. I just wonder if we do some days. I mean, folks, we're, we're sinners. We're sinners saved by grace just like everybody else. And, and I think our hearts just deceive us sometimes in how sinful we truly are and were. And it's only by God's grace that we can be saved. Think about the word world. Um, that word world is actually from the word cosmos, which uh, means everything. Everything benefits whenever one person becomes a Christian. Right down to his dog. His dog just might be a beneficiary of that. Uh, you think of that. Just, just the things that can change by one person becoming a Christian. God was concerned about the world. Think about Nicodemus. I wonder if he's having this niggling little um, thoughts about the Romans. Not real popular at that time. God loved them too. Now it says that he gave. What do you, how do you feel when somebody gives you something? Um, how do you, uh, what level of gratitude do you have when somebody gives you something? Well, I'm going to suggest it has to do with the gift and the giver. That will somewhat determine your level of gratitude. Um, what do we have here? Who's the gift? Who's the giver? Salvation is truly a, a gift. And um, hopefully we put enough value on that. i, I, I got to confess that I wonder if I do sometimes. Do I truly understand the, um, what God gave us when he gave us his son? And he gave us his only son. And I'm not going to elaborate on that much. Uh, Brother Tom, the other week, did that for us. Um, can you imagine your only son? And um, you're going to sacrifice him for these people that you've had such an unpleasant experience with for several thousand years? Um, the love of God is unbelievable. In verse, um, or I shouldn't say verse, the next phrase, whoever believes, that quickly qualifies this love of God. It's available to everybody. You and I, anybody can, can have this love, can experience this salvation, but we must choose it, okay? Whoever believes, not the unbeliever, whoever believes. Um, and, and I think sometimes we... Um, 
we may be, I shouldn't say we, but sometimes I think uh, it, it's somewhat of a, you know, we get fuzzy on this. Not everybody's going to be saved, okay? Let's understand that. And it's going to be those who believe. Do we have to figure out who that is? No. But we do know this. It's not going to be everybody. So whoever believes won't perish, but this person's going to have eternal life. Would it be okay with you if God said, okay, I'll save you, but I'm just going to save you from hell. You're going to end up in limbo, but I'm going to save you from hell. Would that be good enough for you? It would for me. I mean, from what I know about hell, the little I know about it, I'm good with that. Actually, I'd be okay with that. But God said, not only that, I'm going to give you eternal life. You know, it's unbelievable what, what God is willing to give to us that believe on his name. It's also interesting that John here, the writer of this book, he's infatuated with this idea that God would give eternal life. He mentions life in his book no less than 36 times. Any other New Testament book, the highest number, 17. So John doubles it plus a few. So he loves that idea of life. I do too, by the way. And it's the only thing that John refers to as eternal. The other uh, books um, or gospels talk about eternal death, eternal this, eternal that. John says, I'm just going to talk about eternal life. I'm good, I'm good with that. That's what I want to talk about. Praise God for eternal life. So let's move on now to the last few verses here. Um, Verses 17 to 21. Somewhat of a composite here. And I think think what this actually is, is the, the fruit of that person that is born again. It doesn't necessarily read that way, but when you sit and you look at it, that's somewhat somewhat the way it, it ends up coming out. Jesus tells Nicodemus that God's objective for sending him, Jesus, into the world was not to condemn the world, but to give an opportunity for salvation. Do you suppose that Nicodemus felt like his toes were stepped on at that point? What were the Pharisees notorious for? Condemning people. Absolutely. Think about the woman that was caught in adultery. Think about the publican. Think about the disciples who wouldn't wash the hands at the right time. I mean, condemn, condemn, condemn. And Jesus it condemned them to death at a later, later on. Um, in Nicodemus's mind, and probably pretty much everybody at that time, a god was a condemning entity. Um, you sacrificed to appease the god because he would condemn you otherwise. Actually, the national Jew at that point was hoping for a Messiah that would condemn the Romans. And um, so we have this, this, whole, this whole thing of condemnation being part of, of um, God, okay? Jesus says, no, not so much. Just hold up. God did not send me into this world to condemn it, but to give it an opportunity for salvation. My question to you is, as we... As we um, attempt by God's grace to be children of God, what is our attitude toward the world? Are we people of condemnation or people of love? Now, I realize that I don't want to get too um, off the deep end here, but just, just hang with me a bit. 
Consider the, the woman caught in adultery that Jesus extended such love to, said, neither do I condemn thee. Okay, you remember those famous words. Let's, let's fast forward that to our time. Probably the biggest headliner that we have these days, and you know it, it's, it's the whole gay movement, the gay marriage. The politicians are tripping over each other to write the next bill up that, yep, you can come to my state, you can get married, and we just, we just, just detest it. And for good reason. It, it's, it's a slap in the face of God. We, I get it. It's, it's detestable, deplorable, and does not speak well for, for this country at all. However, is not, um, and, and I know you understand this, but is not a divorced and remarried person just as deplorable in God's eyes? I would dare to say yes, it is. Do we detest that as badly? Well, we, not quite so much. It seems a little bit more okay, you know. The, the point I'm driving at here is, let's be careful. I truly believe, we don't have an example of it, but I truly believe that had a homosexual person came and had a conversation with Jesus, an honest conversation, or, was, or would have been condemned by the rulers of that day, just like that adulterous woman, I dare say the same words would have been spoken. I really do. These people are people that are just as lost as, uh, as we are and have the potential to be saved just like we do. And, you know, we tend to rank our sins and our, our, our things, but let's be careful. Let's be sure that we're, um, that we're known as people that give everybody an opportunity and aren't out there just bashing a certain segment of society because, you know, after all, that's just terrible. It is, but let's act like God about it, or like Jesus, I should say. Jesus kind of wraps this thing up. He says, you know, he says, the world is divided into two classes, and only two. So we can get rid of this. This no longer applies. If you want to do a survey, or if God wants to do a survey, he simply has... He simply has two. All right? That's what it is. You're either saved or you're not. You're either condemned or you're not condemned. You're either a believer or you're an unbeliever. It's just the way it is. There's no halfway Christians. There's no, well, born-agains, and these aren't born-again. It's two classes. Verse 19, he said, this is the condemnation. You could read that, this is the verdict. Here's why that is. Because light has come into this world, and men will not accept the light. They will not accept it. Is there light in this dark world? Folks, there's still light here. I don't know what, what Nicodemus is catching here, but you and I, we got a little bit more to work with than Nicodemus did here. We know that Jesus is the light of the world. We know that Jesus is also the Word. He's called both in, in John 1. We have the Word right here. My question to you and I today is how much do we love light? How much do we like God's Word? Um, this little survey that I referred to um, earlier in the, um, in the talk, one of the things that was measured was, how much do you read God's Word? Well, not very many people did. Um, 
How is it with us? Do we read God's word? Do we want to come into the light? Do we enjoy that? You know, the reason the unbeliever does not enjoy light is because Jesus says it. His deeds are made known and they're not good. They're not very good. Is that why we don't like light? Are we afraid that it might expose something that we would just as soon not have exposed? Well, maybe maybe not so much. Maybe it's just because, you know, we're busy. We got things going on. But folks, we got to love the light. We have to love the light. I think the believer is always concerned about his commitment to doing truth. And I like how Jesus words that in verse 21. He talks about the light there in verse 20. And then in verse 21 says, He that doeth truth comes to the light. He doesn't say he that believes the truth. It's one thing to believe the truth. It's another thing to do the truth. He does the truth. He lives by the truth. The NIV reads reads like this. He who lives by the truth comes to the light so that it may be plainly seen, seen that what he has done is done through God. That's not verbatim, but that's somewhat the gist of how the NIV words it. When people look at us, can they say that this man does the truth? He's exposed to God's word. He just lets that light shine right on him, and he does God's truth. Truth always produces light. Light always produces truth. So let's stop and consider a minute. Where do you think Nicodemus is right now? Have you ever wished that there'd be just a little, you know, we got the climax, but we don't have the ending, you know? Well, there's a reason we don't have the ending. We do have a little bit of an insight of what Nic- Nic- how, how things turned out for Nicodemus. We have two more references to him in the Bible, and that is whenever um, the rulers of the Jews are ready to just do Jesus in, and Nicodemus says, hold up, give it some time. He went to bat for Jesus during his ministry in front of the Sanhedrin, so that's, I think some things were, were, were working for Nicodemus here. And then who was the man that buried Jesus? Well, it was Nicodemus. Um, he, was, he had part in that. And at that point, all of his disciples had forsook, forsook him at that point. So I don't know where Nicodemus was here at the end of this conversation, but I think he was maybe a little confused. I believe he was convicted, and I have a feeling he didn't get a whole lot of sleep that night. I think he went home, he probably laid down, and he thought. That's what I think. How is it with you and I? How do we feel about this? I'd like to conclude with this. At the end of the day, these percentages up here don't matter a whole lot, at least in my opinion. Because in 2 Timothy, it tells us that the Lord knows who are his. He understands that. He knows, and he's he's, he's, he's keeping track of that. So you and I don't have to worry ourselves a whole lot about that. But what I am concerned about is that you and I understand the absolute imperative that we experience a new birth. And I trust that our walk through this conversation with Nicodemus today has refreshed that anew in our mind to keep that current, keep that new birth going, keep it growing, and pass it on.